You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Well, welcome back to The Small Print. My name is Bronwyn Williams, and today we are talking with Duma Guabule, who is an economist, and we're going to be discussing some of the more interesting ways that we could perhaps fund some of the, the deficits and the holes that we find in the South African fiscus. So to start off with, I would like to invite you, Zuma, to please introduce yourself the way you want to be introduced, because we know you're involved with quite a lot of things these days. Yes, um, hi, Bronwyn. My name is Duma Kobula, and I, I just like to say I'm an independent economist. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and that's I'm, I'm a financial journalist as well. Yeah, I write quite, I try to write quite a lot. And um, every year I'd say I will write more. And I haven't, yeah, I, I try to write a bit, quite a lot, yeah. That's what we all say. We, all, we all always plan to write more than we actually get down to doing. But yes, one yes. of the first things we wanted to discuss was that we, we actually, I read one of your articles that you wrote quite recently, and you were picking up how perhaps things like modern monetary theory and not focusing so much on debt and deficits could be beneficial when it comes to finding a way out of some of the, the physical problems that we have here in South Africa. So maybe you can just start with outlining some of your thoughts there on why you think that perhaps the deficit myth does apply to the South African context. So, Bronwyn, you know, when you explain this thing around debt and debt to GDP to ordinary people, the people um, confuse it with a household budget, and it becomes very difficult to actually explain it to normal people. I just saw an article by my editor at Business, at business Day, and he's saying that um, it's difficult to argue that there has been austerity in the South African economy because the debt to GDP ratio has increased, as we know, from was it 28% in 2008 to 80% now. So um, it becomes very difficult. But now what I'm saying is that in a household, um, sorry, there's what Yanis Varoufakis says, there's an independence between your income and your expenditure, but that doesn't apply at the level of the national budget. So at the level of the national budget, when you spend money, you increase your income, your national income and your GDP. But when you cut spending, you reduce your national income and your GDP. So since your GDP, your, your debt ratio is calculated as a percent of GDP, the most sustainable way to um, get rid of your debt problem is to grow the economy. So your debt to GDP ratio grows down. And that actually happened in South Africa between 2004 and 2008 when um, the economy was growing very fast and the debt to GDP ratio went down. I just have to just add one thing. I was doing some work for the trade unions on the public sector wage bill. And what you saw, those massive increase in um, public sector workers and the public sector wages during that period and I think we employed more than 200,000 public sector workers and um, teachers, nurses and whatever, and um, specialists in the healthcare. And it, we comfortably afforded it because the economy was growing and it didn't increase as a percentage of GDP. I think it's, it declined slightly. So, so that those are the things that I, 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 it's a bit difficult to explain. So for now, the problem in the South African economy now is that we're in a deep recession. It's, it's more than the worst. Before COVID, I was saying it's the worst post-apartheid economic crisis. And we've had no growth in the past decade. Unemployment has shot up. Um, and we're now, I, I like to look at the unemployment rate for black Africans, 47%. Unemployment rate for black African females is 50, I think it's 51%, it's over 50%. And in the Eastern Cape, where half my family lives, it is more than 50%. We're actually going there this, week, there tomorrow, this weekend as a to a family do. So it is a, a terrible crisis that we're in, in South Africa. So what the government is doing they're planning an austerity budget. Now, the finance minister said um, many times, um, this is not an austerity budget, but if you go to page 35 of the budget review, they said there will be a decline in non-interest expenditure of 5.2% a year for the period of the medium-term budget statement, I mean, the medium-term expenditure framework. And if you add population growth in real per capita terms, it's a decline of 6.6%. Now, that will obviously result in a higher debt ratio. Um, because when you cut, you can't cut your way towards fiscal sustainability. And um, so now after the fact, people will say, well, the debt ratio has increased, so there can't have been austerity. But there had been austerity. But whether the government actually gets to implement the austerity is another issue. So what I've been saying is that there's no way out of this crisis except an injection of new money into the economy. And I just have to add one thing. People talk about these... Um, what you call it, the structural reforms, but every single document you read 
from Treasury, from the IMF, the biggest cheerleader for structural reforms, shows that they do not deliver economic growth, higher economic growth in the short term. At best, they'll deliver growth in three to five years. So right now, the structural reforms won't get us out of this crisis. Um, and then the other thing that you hear, I'm just doing quickly background, mm. is that um, the president likes saying we are constrained fiscally. Um, and as I'll show you just now, it's actually not true that we are constrained fiscally. And that's all he repeats. Let me give you an example. I think we're going to decommission many um, coal, coal, whatever, coal, coal stations, coal, not stations, coal mines. And we need to replace them with um, other new energy, like say renewables. Or it, it, so he says we are constrained. We can't um, fund the infrastructure plan that we've put on the table. Everything must come from the private sector. So the government over the past five years has been the biggest, um, um, what's it called? There's been a public sector investment strike, not a private sector investment strike. So on top of that, what has been planned now is a withdrawal of the public sector from the capital accumulation in the network industries, which is your transport, your energy, your rail, and so forth. Um, so I, mean, I don't understand I mean, how the government withdrawing its spending, because government is between 30 and 40% of capital spending. How can the government cutting its spending actually grow the economy? Because, um, because um, let's say the private sector increases by 5% and the government goes down by 10%, then the overall result is a cut in investment. Do you see what I'm saying? So the, those are things. So the government's so-called recovery plan does not, it does not add up. You know? And when they say there is no money, as I'll show you, there is money that we can do, it serves a political purpose to achieve a wholesale um, sale of assets to the private sector. But um, Keynes would say, 101, there can't be investment in the economy until there's income, aggregate demand. There's no way you can actually invest in the economy. You go to your board and you say, I want to invest, but your economy is collapsing. They're going to laugh you off as a, you know, big listed companies. Why would you invest in the economy if there's, yeah. So I would say that we have to think of creative ways of, you know, the first thing I say is that we have a central bank, okay. The difference between this crisis and the last one in 2018 is that many um, emerging markets um, implemented what is called quantitative easing. Um, and the IMF did a study in its fiscal monitor in, 2000, in October 2020, and they said, um, I don't have it in front of me, so they looked at a lot of these countries. I'll, I'll look, give you an example of Ghana. Ghana, I read about this. They, they, the government issued a COVID bond to be able to finance this, um, the, the Ghanaian fiscal stimulus, and um, the central bank subscribed for the COVID bond. Um, Guatemala, Indonesia, and the finance minister was in the Financial Times, and she was saying, uh, I remember some during the crisis, that she'll do whatever it takes to finance the government deficit and government spending during the crisis. Now, people get so angry when you talk about the printing of the money by the central bank. And I was talking to an economist friend of mine, her name is Busi Sibeko, and she works at the IEJ, and she was saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't call it MMT, we should call it something else, you know, because I've been to China on study tours twice, you know, and it was becoming an annual pilgrimage. And the Chinese print quite a lot of money, and they finance their development finance institutions. You know, 20 years ago, they had a big bailout of all the banks because all the banks went bust, and it was a $500 billion bailout of the Chinese banks because the Chinese. And model would have collapsed without that bailout. And the central bank created, bailed out the banks, listed some of them on the stock exchange, and everything was back to normal. And they also separated their policy banks, which are the politically directed lending, from the commercial banks, you know, the Bank of China. And now these policy banks, the ones that are funding the Belt and Road Initiative and all the infrastructure projects in Africa, they're financed through central bank money. So what, So my point is, but they've, if you go to China, they've never heard of the word MMT. They just do it. Do you see what I'm saying? And in Japan, where they invented MMT, I mean QE, in 2001, they don't use the term. And as you know, Japan um, has been, they own about half of the government debt, which is since over yes. the past 20 years, they've accumulated. So what, I'm, what I can't understand is that, let me just give an example. In the budget review, you see that the terms of the IMF loan are that there's a payment holiday of three years. The new development bank loan, there's a payment holiday of five years. Now, why can't the central bank 
give a loan to the government on favorable terms. Where, let's forget about the foreign exchange risk, whereby um, it is, um, what do you call it, payment term, you'll pay us when the recovery re re gets better, and then you'll also pay us in five years or three years. Um, so I, I don't see, how is that different from the IMF loan, from the new development bank loan, in terms of the inflationary impact on the economy. And you hear all these scare stories, it's going to debase our economy, but this is one bank, the IMF or the New Development Bank versus the Reserve Bank. I fail to see how it is different, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so, but every, every economic question is a question of trade-offs. There's a cost uh, that comes about somehow. We've got to make a choice. There's no perfect solution in this world. There's no entirely free lunch. So I think that's also a good point to make here. As much as modern monetary theory can be sort of mocked as being like the magic money tree, it's not quite what it is. It's repurposing parts of the real economy and to make it more efficient, at least hopefully. But I suppose that we can take things back a little bit. We can really say that we've got two questions here that we have to resolve when we're looking at the South African economy. We have to look on the one hand, how are we going to fund things going forward? And right now you're busy talking about modern monetary theory or something similar to that as a way to fund what we need to do. But there's another question that I think is probably more concerning to most South Africans. And that is once we have funded the fiscus and put money into the coffers, how is it going to be spent and what's it going to be spent on? Because that is what seems to be the real problem in our real economy here, in that there are two ways that government funds can be spent. The one is productively on things that have a high money multiplier that will actually grow the economy, like what you're talking about right now. But there's also ways that the government can spend money that actually has a negative multiplier effects. And unfortunately, based on our sort of physical track record over the last 10 or so years, South Africa's got a pretty bad track record when it comes to spending money in ways that generates a multiplier effect. And you were alluding to this a bit earlier when you were talking yes. about how our budget seems to be a not austerity budget, but we're not cutting spending on the non-productive side of the bills. We're not cutting consumption in our budget, but we are cutting investment. So we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot twice, right? Because we're probably yes, yes. overspending in things that don't grow the economy, things like those very bloated SOEs that perhaps we don't need right now or don't need to be overfeeding right now. On the other hand, we're cutting back on the expenditure that is required to grow the economy. So cutting back on things like critical infrastructure improvements into our electricity grid, that's a bottleneck. If we don't get electricity right, the public sector and the private sector can't grow. Industry requires a basic level of infrastructure in order to grow. So I think that there's probably two sides to that question there, and you've touched on the first one, how using monetary policy can be a way to fund projects if we, it, as opposed to increasing taxation, which is probably not particularly palatable, or cutting you know, the, the sides of the economy that people are dependent on for wages and grants and that sort of thing. So you've touched on the funding side, but I think the bigger question there is that sort of elephant in the room as to what that money is going to be spent on and is there political will that if that power is put into the hands of our central bankers and our governments and our politicians is it going to be spent in a way that does generate a return and if not what can we be doing as economists as citizens as public and private sector people that have a stake in this economy to nudge it to make sure that that money is spent productively do you have any thoughts on that oh yes okay so thanks Bronwyn. okay so there's no financial constraints. And in, in addition to the central bank, there's many other ways we can rejig the mm. SA Inc. balance sheet. But I won't go into that. So there is, um, in, there's political constraints, okay? Um, yeah. So the political constraints as an inexplicable paralysis within the ruling party, the ANC, where they cannot make a decision on even the smallest thing. That's number one. And these issues are way above my page grade. There's institutional constraints as well, in the sense that... Um, you know, the issues of corruption and the lack of state capacity as well. So those are real issues. But what I've been talking about recently, I've got a friend of mine. He, he's, he's a legend in the Eastern Cape, Kuseli Jack, and he's running for mayor of um, Port Elizabeth. And we argue about the same issue all the time. So I said, Kuseli, you're a, you're a businessman. And why would you support austerity? And then I tell him all the things that I'm telling you, Bronwyn. And then he says, okay, I don't have a problem. As long as it's not this ANC government that's going to spend it. So what I said, okay, so let's 
submit, let's now, let's have some kind of new agreement, a temporary arrangement which bypasses government. This is a thought experiment. So let's do something like the Solidarity Fund. It's a professionally managed fund and that's look like no political interference. And I was listening to Gloria Sirobe presenting in Parliament. Why don't we repurpose the Solidarity Fund to become a public-private community entity that's going to spend this money according to set criteria? Now, during the New Deal under Roosevelt, he set up many what they called alphabet agencies. They existed temporarily until the economy was, grow was growing again. And I think they, like, they, I think they were half a decade and then they collapsed afterwards. So I'm saying, let's do something like that. So I say to my friend, in the Eastern Cape, let's say you have that type of solidarity fund and communities, business people like you, Mr. Jack, and other people would go and bid for projects that would create jobs and develop the Eastern Cape economy. And um, there will be people on the other side who are accountants, professional people. There will be maybe some community representation, union representation. You know, all, as we do things, that's how we roll in South Africa. And then they make professional decisions based on certain criteria, job creation, economic growth, um, um, and so forth. Whatever the criteria are, it doesn't really matter. And this will be a transparent way of spending the money while the government gets us acting to order. Now, the second issue, what do we spend the money on? As you correctly said, um, we'd rather spend it on infrastructure under normal circumstances. And when I was talking pre-COVID about uh, fiscal stimulus, 100% of it would have gone towards infrastructure spending. Now, let's forget about all the state capture and all the inefficiencies in the South African economy. Let's suppose we can spend it. In a, so the IMF said the fiscal, the money multiplier is 2.7. Every rand that you, or dollar that you spend, you get 2.7 back as a government, you know. But so that seems like a free lunch if ever there was one um, um, that we should be doing. That's number one. Number, but now the problem is, Bronwyn, we've got an immediate humanitarian crisis based on the COVID, COVID crisis. And the unemployment figures I told you, and um, we can't ignore the unemployment crisis. Now, the saddest thing during this pandemic that I've seen is the dehumanizing cues of people queuing for that COVID 350 grant. And this morning I, I sent an SMS to my friend. I always talked to this friend of mine and I say, this is the longest queue I've seen ever since the crisis started. People, most of them men, because the women are excluded because um, they receive other grants. So it's young men, 90% in these queues, and very young women who do not have child grants, you know. And so we have to address this humanitarian crisis. So I would say, I would spend half of it on infrastructure and the half of it on funding a basic income grant. And um, in recent years, I've become a big supporter of the basic income grant. You know, before the crisis, um, and before, like let's say before two years ago, I was agnostic as to whether it should be a job guarantee, which if you look, look at the debates in the US, there's the MMT support for a job guarantee, and a, a, what's it called, basic income grant, you know? It's universal called, basic income, yeah. Yeah, universal basic income. A so UBI I was, of some sort. UBI, yeah. So I was agnostic mm -hmm. as to what we should do because it was pre-COVID, you know. But now, when you look at the South African situation today, um, how can I put it? We've got state capacity problems. Um, the basic, I mean, the job guarantee has to be implemented at the level of municipalities. And our municipalities are not in a situation whereby they can implement this basic income grant. So I would say... The easiest way to infuse money into the economy is uh, through a basic income grant. So I would um, have this. Uh, the, now there are multipliers that have been done. There's a, I'm sure you've been following the amazing website by this World Bank economist called Ugo Gentiloni, uh, where he has analysed every single country. I think a hundred, more than a hundred countries had cash transfers to people during this crisis, and he has documented every single one of them what happens and so forth. And then, yeah, so I'm just saying that, so he's come up with certain multipliers, they are less than infrastructure, um, but so, as South Africa, in terms of this fiscal stimulus, would have to blend the infrastructure one and the humanitarian one, and once you blend it, you would have something that is 
lower than the pure infrastructure one, but it would be greater than, I would believe it to be greater than one. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think, I think the, the key yeah. there is to make sure that you're not spending it all on the humanitarian side because yes, all you yes, end up yes, doing yes. then yeah. is kicking that can further down the road and prolonging the crisis. Because what you really want is not to have more of the population on a basic income grant. You want to have more of the population being independent because that's that's from just a basic sort of Probably human dignity perspective. I believe that as well. I said I used to believe mm. that it used to be infrastructure only. Two years ago, the ANC had these... Um, cabinet, I mean, ANC Lakotlas that they have, and they said they want to halve the unemployment rate by five years. So I did the numbers. What would it take to halve the unemployment rate by five years? And then I said, it's a huge number that even if the government does everything that I say they must do, I don't think they will achieve halve the rate of unemployment. Now, then I did it at the end of last year. I, pro I projected what would it take for us to achieve full employment by 2030? and we would have to create 17 million jobs by 2030. Um, so that is a huge number, and there's... Um, there's and that was before COVID? That, no, this is the end of year, last year. So yeah, Okay, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so 2020 to 2030, I was using the numbers for the, for the second quarter of 2020, the LFS numbers. Mm. And then 17 million jobs, and we have to grow. There is a, some kind of an employment multiplier as well. Um, which economists debate around. So I talked to all the people who specialize in this. And Busa had a number, and, um, and Harun Borat had a number. And um, I can't remember which one I chose. And I, I, chose, I came to a number, and to 17 million jobs that we have to create. The economy will have to grow at more than 8% for, for a decade for us to create full employment. But the point, what I'm trying to say is that even if, so there will be a lot of people needing humanitarian aid for a long time. Now, the difference with other countries that implemented such um, comprehensive social security is that they did it from a lower base of unemployed people. So, yes. But in South Africa, we don't... Have, like, I look at East Asia and all that, you know, a lot. And they had lower level of unemployment than we have. But so in South Africa, I say currently, we don't have the luxury of doing that. But as we increase the jobs, hopefully the people who are dependent on this will... But it has to be calibrated properly according to you know technical and um, information and economic analysis you know that um, really difficult in economic analysis that i can't do as to how many how much it will um how much the welfare will reduce the humanitarian spending or the relief spending as opposed to the job creating in um job creating you know infrastructure spend as well yeah so that yeah. is what i would do yeah yeah it's that old trade-off because it's, it's what's urgent and what's important. I mean, the infrastructure yes. question is, is essential. It's important. And we're not going to get out of the situation unless we fix that. But at the yes. same time, we've got an immediate, urgent crisis that has to be dealt with. People have to eat. People have to survive. So we can't forget about that. So, you know, we, we, we can talk about perfect economic models, but we're dealing with a very messy, very real reality that we have right. to deal with. We're not starting from a blank slate. We're starting from a very uneven slate. But I suppose I can ask you a bit of a hard question here. Yeah, I don't know if you have an answer for it, but I've been following the data quite closely as to what's happened with the various different countries that have been doing these helicopter grants and doing all these different cash disbursements of various different degrees. I mean, our ones are small. You're talking about 350 rand. That's, that's barely a survival wage. It's hardly like what America is doing with their sort of new Biden payouts, which are quite tasty. I mean, like that's, that's like a person's annual income here in South Africa in many cases that they're handing out. And the American cases, of course, is they're much more extreme than what was going on here. But what has been concerning to me is what has happened in the United States over the course of the last year since that helicopter money has dropped. And we have seen indisputable evidence that inequality in the United States has accelerated. So overall, household income has gone up. But everyone other than the top strata of society has got poorer, which means that the rich have got a lot richer and the poor have got a lot poorer very, very quickly. And almost like the rich has got, a, got richer at the expense of the poor. And this for me is perhaps an unintended consequence of the outcomes of these sorts of cash disbursements where they're intended to help the most vulnerable. They're intended to actually reduce inequality. But in effect, due to the various different market dynamics and the fact that wealthier people, if they have extra cash, get to invest it in things that have a money multiplier, whereas poorer people have to spend it on consumption goods, 
it is something that does concern me a bit when we start talking about increasing the, the cash dispersals, not because we don't want to help people, we have to help people right now, but we have to also consider, particularly in South Africa, where we already have the world's largest inequality problem, what are we doing to reduce not just absolute poverty, but relative poverty too? Because there, there are two separate questions that cash disbursements help with absolute getting food on the table, helping people to survive through a crisis. But there's also the relative question, which I do find concerning based on the data that's been coming out. If we start to look at to roll these programs out over a longer time, like you're talking sort of five to 10 years, what are your thoughts on that, on how we can be reducing relative inequality, which for me is a huge concern for social stability, political stability, and just dignity of human life. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, um, quite an excellent question. Okay, so now I'll answer it in three parts. Um, what happened with the nature of quantitative easing that was implemented after the global financial crisis? So all it mm. did is, you know, to MMT people's credit, they said this wouldn't be inflationary because it would just drive up asset prices. Um, it's money that will be trapped in the real economy, I mean, in, in the financial markets. And that's exactly what happened. The rich got richer. And so the central banks were accused of for increasing inequality because of the nature of the quantitative easing that was implemented. So you had people like Jeremy Corbyn who were saying, um, why can't we just have people's quantitative easing where we give the money direct to the people and not the fat cats at Goldman Sachs and um, Lehman Brothers or whatever, you know? Because many of those people just use the money to pay their bonuses and it was the excesses of capital. That's during the global financial crisis. Now what we've had here, so the inequalities are not necessarily due to the cash payers, although I'll come, that's the third part of the question. The second part of is that the NASDAQ, I saw some figures as to, it's tech loaded. So, so when we were doing everything on Zoom, online, the tech companies went through the roof, your Amazons, your Apples and whatever, and, and the rest of the economy was not growing. So there's a big disconnect in, um, in terms of the stock market and the real economy. So what you saw was that um, the real economy was lagging and the billionaires in the US became richer and so forth. And by the way, for another study I've been doing in South Africa, because there's also a disconnect between our stock market and the performance of the real. We've had the biggest um, crisis in a century for the real economy, but stock markets throughout the world are going up, including in South Africa. Now, what I discovered when I just recently did an analysis in terms of a big study I've been doing on black economic empowerment um, for Wits University is that 75% um, of the JSE has got nothing to do with the South African economy. So that explains the disconnect. So you have companies like Naspers and Process and AB InBev that just got nothing to do with South Africa or very little to do with South Africa. And those are what is driving up stock prices and increasing inequality in terms of asset inequality. And what you found is that our stock market has been growing because of the behavior of gamers in China because of 10 cents uh, stock price and regulations and the trade war and so forth. That's the second element because um, the tech companies went through the roof Remember last time it was the financial companies, this time it's the tech companies which are driving this inequality. Now the third aspect is I read a very interesting article over the weekend as to what happened to that um, stimulus that has pre-the Biden stimulus. And what they found is that many American people, um, they earned more, the income of Americans went up during the what you call it? On average, to, yeah. On average, yeah. <laughs> including the people at the bottom, like I'll, I'll come back to that. Because I, mm. I don't have the study in front. The, the average incomes went up in the first nine months of last year compared to the previous year throughout this pandemic because of all these stimulus checks. Now the problem is that um, so there's two sides of it. There were the unemployment, the, the unemployment insurance payments. The average American got more through those payments than when they were working. So we had the unemployment insurance fund that pays you very little between 38 and 60% of your salary up to a maximum of 6,300 rands. And um, in America, the majority of the people got more from those checks. Now, what they came up with is that the economy, I can't remember the figure, the economy will still decline by about 4%, which is better than many countries. But the reason for that is that they, we shut down the economy in the US, they shut down the economy, 
people didn't buy and people engaged in precautionary savings. So you're on Zoom every day and you don't have to, I mean, you're in, so you don't have to spend as much as you're spending before. So people saved more money. I haven't looked at the data, but that's what the article is saying. So they're saying the full impact of the stimulus hasn't been felt because people didn't spend all the money and they um, saved some of the money. So that's my explanation of what happened here. Yeah, but that's a very good point. And that is another distinction as to what what is possible to do in the South African context, unless you have a way that we could get away from that. Because you were speaking earlier about the, the two different forms of spending from the government perspective. You can spend on things that increase the multiplier, so you can spend on investment, or you can spend the money on consumption. Same with the debt question as a, on a sort of a household level. You can take out debt to invest in a business, which becomes a multiplier, a good investment, or you can take yes. out debt to consume, which is bad because you end up losing twice, you know, you end up paying more for the same goods. So I think the real question is if we do want to fix inequality in South Africa, how do we get to a point where that bottom half of our population, you're talking about more than half the population doesn't even have a job. So that's a huge chunk of the bottom half. It's more than the bottom half. How do we get that cohort of South Africans, not just to have enough money to consume, because that, that just ends up being on a treadmill, right? You're consuming, you're getting, giving people money, but they have to consume it. So they're staying where they are. They're not moving anywhere while the rest of the economy who is able to save a bit gets to invest and gets to move ahead that much faster. So you can almost see it like the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland, where you're running faster and faster, but they're just staying in the same place and end up getting relatively still worse off than everyone else who has that bit of extra money to invest rather than just to consume. How do we get to a point that we get those people off that treadmill and to start actually getting a percentage of the growth, even if it is small growth, even if we're not going to achieve 8% growth, although that's kind of what we need if we want to really change the story. How do we get to share growth going forward so that we can close that gap, so we can get off this treadmill of just keeping people barely alive and barely having enough just to survive because I think that is really the catch that we're in and it's the same catch between the difference between spending our national budgets on investment versus spending it on on humanitarian aid for to get through a crisis how do we break that cycle to make sure that those people that are currently having to rely on the government get to get out of that cycle and get to start tasting the fruits of the future because a lot of my work is in the future space and if you want to get people excited about the future you have to give people a stake in the future people have to have something to look forward to but they have to be invested in it in a, in a very literal sense how do we get that investment into the hands of the people that are literally being left behind on this whole sort of perpetual treadmill and we have to be honest when we're talking about things like modern monetary theory and quantitative easing we don't live in just in one country we live in a global environment and the more money America and China prints, the more we also have to print just to catch up. So we can see it between like the, the bottom strata of South Africans versus the top strata. We can also see it as South Africa as a country having to run faster and faster to stay in relative position compared to the other countries in the world. And how do we break that cycle to stop being the, the catching up and to start being part of growth going forward? Do you have any comments on that? Okay, so... I'm going to start by saying, looking at, I've looked at um, a, a, what happened to our economy over the last 30 years. And mm. the int interesting period is that um, there, was, there was one period in our history between 2003 and 2008 when the economy grew well, grew fast. Now, many people say it was because of the commodity crisis. And I did a lot of work in a previous life on commodities um, throughout the world, throughout Africa. And one interesting thing that piqued my, I mean, interested me is that there was this Africa rising scenario thesis that Africa was growing very fast during that period, the early 2000s before the global financial crisis because of the commodity boom. Then if you look at the data, there was a report by McKinsey at the time, they showed that even for Nigeria, the ultimate, um, what you call it, um, commodity dependent country, most of the growth was not driven by commodities it was driven by consumption spending and services and so forth. So it wasn't driven. So across Africa, the majority of African countries are not commodity producing countries. I think if I remember, four countries control, what's it, 90% of oil production. And South Africa alone at the time was two thirds of mineral production. 
and then after South Africa you get DRC and you get Zambia and so forth. But what I was, what I was trying to show is that the majority of African countries were not commodity dependent economies. Most of them in East Africa, uh, Ethiopia, were not driven by the commodity cycle. And then I went and looked at South Africa as well and it wasn't that. So what was driving the South African economy was expansionary monetary and fiscal policies. So what I'm trying to show is that interest rates came down, if people remember this time, yeah. crashing and after the depreciation of 2001. And it, was, it started off Bronwyn as a consumption boom. Um, people forget that. Then it was a property boom. Um, many yes. people's houses um, became um, worth more because people were buying houses. And then we sucked in imports. Um, you go to Incredible Connection, your laptop was 5,000, you know. And then, um, then it became an investment boom when the government was spending a lot of money. And the numbers for government public sector investment spending during that period was astounding, more than 20% a year. So, this, so it started off as consumption, it became something else later on. So it, it's sort of like it crowded in public, private and public sector, no, private sector investment, as they say. So we created 3.1 million jobs. The unemployment rate between March 2003 and December 2008 went down from 40.6%, expanded one to 28.7%, if I remember well. So it was a period of great success, but it started off with a consumption boom. That is answering a question. So now we have to put income into the people at the bottom of the pyramid, and to use that uh, contentious term. And if we put money into, so now, Let's say we blend the high multiplier money of 2.7 with the humanitarian multiplier of, let's say, the lower one of the World Bank was 0.8. So you must remember that mm. even consumption and humanitarian spending will have a multiplier, and we believe that if it's targeted at the lower end of the market, it won't result in people saving the money, as you saw in the US, they'll go out and spend it, you know. So um, it creates its own multipliers in local communities, and one of the highlights of my period during this um, pandemic, I had an interview with Vivian Taylor, who was, who was the original author of this um, United, the basic income report, that the Taylor report that was given to government in 2001. And she explained to me that, you know, these things have multipliers in local communities. And if you remember during COVID, um, the retail companies were making a lot of money because, um, and it was driving, but then the spaza shops couldn't operate during the hard lockdown, which also exacerbated inequality. Yeah. So there are, there are local, in, there are local, um, there are local multipliers in the townships there will be, it will help sustain the businesses in the township. And you must remember that informal enterprises have decreased during the, during the pandemic. And um, we're thinking we're just above 2 million informal enterprises in South Africa, if I remember well. And one of the things about South Africa is that we've got a low, much lower informal sector than almost every developing country. And for whatever reason it is. So we have to stimulate that side of the economy, the informal sector, to be able to grow. Because in many of these African countries, or India, which we compare ourselves with, which have got, and Brazil, which have got higher, lower unemployment rates of 10%, they've got a higher informal sector to soak up um, people. So for whatever reason, we have not, um, there's, um, what do you call it? There are like oligopoly structures in every industry. Um, and, um, you know, concentration of, you know, so there are less opportunities for people in formal, for example, in agriculture, you have got your big agro companies, I mean, big producers, farms, and then that creates less opportunities in agriculture and in retail and so forth. Yeah. So I just think that we have to unlock the power of the informal sector. And many people have made recommendations around that. I remember back in the day, I had lunch with the Social Development Minister of Ethiopia in Pretoria. And he says that in Ethiopia, they had at the time one million beneficiaries of microfinance. Microfinance is big business in Ethiopia. And many people have argued that it can be exploitative when the interest costs are too high. And you've also seen in Kenya a lot of innovation in terms of um, microfinance and um, alternative currencies in Kenya. So I'm just saying that, um, so we must use this money to create the multipliers in those communities where people live in. Because many of those communities are disconnected from 
the first world of South African economy. Uh, Thabo Mbeki used to talk about the two economies, and it was actually true. So many people live in that economy, and so we have to find a way to create, to stimulate local multipliers. So what it might mean in practice is that you provide that basic income and you, you also upgrade the, the infrastructure in the township and so forth, or whatever, or you invest in, provide small enterprise finance. The, the other thing that really bugs me is that the amount of money that goes towards small and medium enterprises, especially black small and medium enterprises, it's a hobby of mine. To I phone the banks every now and again when I've got time, and I say, how much, they've got commitments in terms of the financial sector charter. How much have you lent in the past year to black SMEs in terms of your financial sector charter commitments? The latest report showed that they had lent 28 billion, 0.5% of their assets, towards black, small, and medium enterprises. Now, if you look at the annual increase, one bank, which I will not name, where I bank, they, had, they actually sent me a response to say that we have increased spending to black SMEs by 500 million in the last year. And then if you look at what the government is doing, the government spending on SMEs is almost, black SMEs is almost non-existent. I've spent time talking to the land bank. What are you lending towards emerging black farmers? They have, they, they refuse to release that number, but it's a very small number. The second thing is that you look at um, the IDC lends to your larger enterprises. The National Empowerment Fund has not been funded for um, a 10 year, I mean, since 2010 the last time they got state funding. And they should be getting an award because they've been managing, I spoke to a board member and she told me that we have been living through collections and we use that to recycle the money. So I think that they have had a clean audit every year for the past, um, since inception, and we should be lauding it for, for staying afloat despite operating under such trying financial conditions. So that's number two. And then you look at the Small Enterprise Finance Agency, a billion rands for all South Africans is too little. So if you look at what's happening in the public and the private sector, you, you have no funding for black SMEs. So what we should be talking about, you know, we should be diversifying our financial sector. You know, if you go to Germany, you've got like cooperative banks everywhere. You'd have a bank for Tembisa, you'd have a bank for Soweto and so forth. And we should be creating entities that can provide financing to the enterprises in Tembisa, in um, Guguletu and so forth, direct to the people. And um, yeah, so and the last thing I want to say is that a friend of mine recently, she had a very, one of the most innovative microfinance institutions in South Africa. It's called Kuyasa, it's in Cape Town. And she's been working on this, I think, for 20 years. And during COVID, they had problems with people not being able to pay. And the people get the microfinance to finance their house extensions. It's not unproductive money. It's used for productive purposes, but it's microfinance. So if you want to do an extension to your house in Cape Town, shows it, it's an amazing case study, but people during COVID couldn't pay for um, the recollections and they ran into financial trouble and they had to retrench their workers. And recently they've just, I heard, got an angel investor to salvage uh, some of that amazing project. So there are, we should stimulate amazing community projects like the ones that I'm talking about. But unfortunately, um, it, yeah, so that's what I would think we must do, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good thing you said that, but I think it also reminds me of what happened with the stimulus that was allocated last year to our sort of COVID crisis budget that took place in 2020, where we saw that a lot of those guarantees, a lot of the, the government guaranteed money that was, was backed for loans that were supposed to go to small businesses and to individuals, banks weren't using that money to loan to, to SMEs. So they basically just used that guarantee to loan to a lot of the the clients that already had access to credit at that point in time. So which comes back to your point as to if we're putting money into the economy, if we are going to increase money supply with a view to stimulating growth, you have to make sure the people getting the first drink at the tap are those who need it most, that it's not being used to perpetuate inequalities, which unfortunately is what we've seen. And I mean, even that whole sort of the, the SME emergency fund that was put out, that cash doesn't seem to have got into the hands of entrepreneurs who are either trying to start something new or to stay afloat. Would you disagree with that assessment? Or, agree, or how do you think we stop that going wrong again? 
Okay, so basically the stimulus, the government talks about 500 billion. I've calculated it to about 120 billion. So what you saw, there was a, the big part of the flagship stimulus was the, the, the bank, the loan guarantee. Yeah, the billion. loan guarantee. Yeah, but 17.9 billion rands was actually loaned to um, businesses. And as you correctly said, many of the banks use a state guarantee to finance prime clients. So it didn't go to people at the bottom of the pyramid. And then on the other hand, you had various in terms of the stimulus package, I think it was 6.1 billion that was allocated towards small and medium enterprises. And um, there's a report by the Auditor General where she goes through all these funds as to what it was done. It's very interesting reading. She looks at the tourism equity fund and all of the funds that happened, but many of them were not successful. And per sector, um, for example, the one for artists, um, many of my friends are filmmakers, they got very little money from that um, stimulus that was through arts and culture. And um, I know people in tourism were trying to get the funding, but the fund was actually shut recently um, and they couldn't um, get money. So there are all kinds of institutional or bureaucratic impediments that are preventing people from accessing this money. And I think we have to, and what we also saw that overseas, where um, the British, um, there were a lot of um, institutional in terms of their, so they had one for large companies and one for small companies. And there were also um, institutional companies, I and mean, the banks used their normal credit criteria. So there was a lot of in discussion between uh, Majesty's Treasury, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, and the banks to them to release, the, to, to relax their credit criteria. So these are things that we have to work on, but we have to find ways of the money to get to the people at the bottom of the pyramid, yeah. Okay, and this is perhaps an unfair question for me to ask you, but it is something that I have been looking at quite a lot. It's to the fragility of our general social contracts based on the fact that we have an economy that's part of a world. And what we are seeing right now is that capital flows have developed a lot more on-ramps and off-ramps. And when you start talking about things like quantitative easing or modern monetary theory or any sort of expansionary physical and, and monetary policies, they are premised at their core on the base of a government having full sovereign control over their money supply. These sorts of initiatives do require central bankers to have more complete control over their currencies otherwise inflation does become a risk because it's like a leak in the bucket so if you in inject money in if it leaves the economy rather than being used to grow into a multiplier that's when inflation does become a risk and then like all, all the core modern monetary theory policy and uh, and research really does drive that point home you require control over your own currencies in order to you know play these sorts of Keynesian games, if you want to put it that way, to have that control to, to, to grow your economies. But we've got a few spanners thrown in the works right now. Firstly, our physical borders are very, very porous in South Africa, so people can take cash literally, physically across the border quite easily. But we're also facing a, a global challenge in terms of borderless private money, which has really come into maturity over the course of the crisis, talking here about cryptocurrencies and how effectively they can be used as private tax havens, even for the not very rich members of your societies. And if we look at it from a, an American context or a Chinese context, both those very big, very strong states are quite concerned about this and how it impacts on the ability to control their own monetary policy. So we're seeing a lot, of, a lot of legislation coming on board to try and control that because you can't have both those games. You can't have people playing a, a private private money when you're trying to control your public money. On the African continent, you can look at what's come out of Nigeria now with their central banks saying they don't know how to control this. And this becomes a very big challenge, particularly for African states that are trying to formalize, that are trying to grow, that are trying to bring the informal economy into the formal economy. If people have an alternative to the formal financial system, how does that impact on the ability for governments, for central bankers to do some of the things you were speaking about, to, to get the benefits without increasing the risks, which weren't, which weren't that strong even just five years ago? It, for me, there is a bit of a, there's a bit of a challenge there in terms of how we can have you know, our, our modern monetary theory and our sort of Bitcoin too, unless you have, do you have a comment on that or do you think yeah, it's not no, an no, issue? No, no, it is. It's a very important issue because um, 
you know, MMT rightly talks about achieving monetary sovereignty. So it only applies yeah. to countries that have got monetary sovereignty. And one of the things that you must issue debt in your own currency, mm. you must tax it in your own currency, and you must reduce the the, the impacts, the, the negative. You said the highways and the freeways. The on ramps and off ramps, the ways for the cash ramps, to sort of yeah, fall yeah, out of the get, system. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to you, you have to get. Um, Tighter control. It's it's a yeah, planned yeah. economy. It's a more yes, planned yes, yes. economy. Yes. So 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 yeah. Like just compare Zambia. Is it's got a debt problem. I phoned my friend, um, who's an expert in Zambia, and he was telling me that the foreign denominated debt is crazy. You know, it's it's like I think it's about two thirds of their debt is foreign in, in foreign currency. And when they don't I was have much in, leverage. Mm. Yes, yes. So that creates um, that creates risks for your economy and a and constraint for, as to and how a constraint. Can, yeah, because yeah. Um, they can call back the money. And but in South Africa, we're at about ninety percent. Now we also have in South Africa, um, the the foreign ownership of our bond market has gone down to about thirty percent, and the foreign ownership of the stock exchange last year when I asked straight which is about 40 percent yeah so and um, when you have to ex you have to be sure not be sure you have to make it more likely that if you implement these policies they won't get exit of money from the economy that's number one number two what we saw during the crisis was that there was a dislocation in um, you know financial markets throughout the world and there was 100 billion dollars that left um, emerging markets towards the safety of the dollar and our currency depreciated sharply. But what you've seen since then is the recovery of emerging market currencies um, since that dislocation that happened. And money has returned to, um, um, to emerging markets. I think only recently, in the last few, the end of February I was reading, the International Institute for Finance has shown a reversal of that trend because of fears around, you know, the bond yields in the U.S. are going up, mm. and um, there's a reversal of that trend um, because of inflation fears in the U.S. because of the stimulus and the noise that's coming out of the, the central, the Fed about the new way of conducting monetary policy. So that's number two, and then the third one is that uh, you know, um, Ronan, the one about the cryptocurrency, uh, you know more about it than I do. I was reading one of your articles that. Uh, your producer sent to me and um, you know I've just been following it it's fascinating I don't know as much about it as you but I've been following what's happening in China as with Jack Ma and um, mm. the fight with the Chinese regulators who are trying to get control of that uh, payments mechanism that um, mm. he has and yeah so I, I, maybe something we definitely have to watch in South Africa definitely it's a, yeah, my, it's a potential threat to to sovereignty yes, yes. and yes, to yes, control yes. and to the ability to the to the power that central bankers and central government authorities to, my, have. My power's about to go. I'm at three percent now, and I didn't bring a okay. charge. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well. I think we've pretty much covered everything that I wanted to touch base with you today, but it would be great maybe to catch up with you some other time and we can unpack a bit more about what we can be doing to build more sustainable from both the social and environmental perspective economies going forward, particularly economies that are going to be valuable to all citizens of our country, not just to the, the few, the elite, the politically connected and the very, very wealthy. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you so much for joining me.